Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, Retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Hi, and welcome to Moments of Leadership. Today, my guest is retired Major General Mel Spies. General Spies was a career infantry officer in the Marine Corps, but definitely had some interesting detours along the way, such as serving in an aviation unit during Desert Storm, and also as the commanding officer of 2nd Force Reconnaissance Company in the early 90s. But as the interview goes on, you'll actually hear him say that his favorite command and his best time in the Marine Corps was as Coyote 6 out in 29 Palms, which as everybody knows who has served any time in the Marine Corps or any time in 29 Palms is basically synonymous with the king of the desert. Major General Spies takes some time to talk about his theories about leadership and the different traits and principles. It has a very interesting philosophy about how combining the strengths and weaknesses of the different people in an organization and aligning some of the unique personalities was one of the keys to his early success in leading an infantry platoon. He'll tell a quick story about how he figured it all out when he got some chocolates from some of his Marines. He takes some time to talk about his philosophy regarding the 25 different leadership traits and principles and highlights that the leader has to not only respect the people being led, but has to respect themselves as well. Be sure to stick around to the end. When Major General Spies and I have a pretty candid conversation about people getting relieved or fired in the Marine Corps, his feeling is that when someone gets fired in the Marine Corps, it's really less about the incident and a lot more about their nature and the behavior behind the incident. He feels that the incident is really just a manifestation of the real shortcomings of a leader. So with no further ado, here is part one of a two-part interview with retired Marine Corps Major General Mel Spies. General Spies, welcome. Thanks for taking some time to be a guest on Moments in Leadership. I'm really looking forward to this podcast, especially on the heels of my last episode with Matt Cooper, because he mentioned you by name and talked about a very special relationship that he has with you. I was very excited that you agreed to come on after him. I know we'll get to some stories about your time with Matt, but would love it if you would just take a few minutes to just orient and introduce yourself to everybody. Maybe tell us a little bit about where you grew up and why you became a Marine and hit on a couple of your highlights of your almost 37-year career, right? Yes. I was uh, born in the in Chicago, grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago. My father was a career soldier. Right after I was born, we went to Germany. For three years, I was a baby. We came back, and in those days, the Army assigned active-duty soldiers to high school ROTC units. And with the exception of a 13-month tour in Korea, he finished up his career there. So I grew up in the western suburbs, uh, in fact, one of the housing developments that we really put together for the World War II generation coming home. My uncle who served in Europe, my dad fought in the Philippines and then fought in Korea. My uncle fought in Germany, France and Germany. And he lived right down the street. You know, the first story of the house was complete. The second story wasn't. You know, it, it, it really was uh, 
different time in America. I went to the University of Illinois to fly F-4s in the Navy. When I got there, I saw the Marine officer instructor. I saw him and I was impressed. I didn't know what the Marine Corps was. Didn't even know it existed. And then our first drill period, I was in B Company. And I looked down at the end of the formation and there was a small unit the drill team. And the guy who was standing in front of it was somebody who struck me. And I just said, I don't know this one of these, whatever he is. Ends up, uh, he was an artillery officer, became an artillery officer, Bobbuck, who retired as a colonel. His last act as the undersecretary of the Navy was to fly to Camp Pendleton and retire. Full circle in my career. And then he most recently served as the deputy secretary of defense. So he's the number two civilian in the Department of the Navy and the number two civilian in the Department of Defense. He retired a colonel. So I, that's, I saw that and I, I wanted to be a Marine. And that was your college roommate? He, he was, for yes, for a while. He was a couple of years ahead of me. So As we were getting to know each other before the recording started, you had, set, you had passed on to me something that he said to you, which, I'm, which I want to read to you because I thought it was so fantastic that I wrote it down myself. You said that he said to you at one point, whatever you were able to glean from me, it will be the truth as I understand it in a most absolute sense. And I thought, wow. What a fantastic saying. I, I wish I had that on my desk when I was 22-year-old lieutenant. He was a very good leader, and it went beyond just being college guys. He displayed mm -hmm. superb leadership, and I watched him. And as you, as you tend to do with leaders, especially if you're new and putting stuff together, you see things that attract you, and, and you strive to emulate. I've said this and again, my, my leadership was well-formed and well-set in me and my behavior at the University of Illinois. And when I got in the Marine Corps, it was, it was building on that. Uh, that's how good that experience was for me. And the Marine officer instructor, both the two MOIs we had were significant in that. But as, Oz, as it may sound, it was a fellow midshipman, a senior midshipman who was a profound influence, not just wanting to be a Marine, but in what I wanted to be as a Marine. From ROTC, then talk us through some of the highlights of your career. Well, I went to the basic school. I was an infantry officer before the infantry officer course. Went to Okinawa like everybody was supposed to do with the 3rd Marine Division. and That was where I joined a rifle company with first lieutenant, no, second lieutenant then, R.B. Neller as a weapons platoon commander. So Uncle Bob, as the kids call him, uh, we, we go. You know, after that, I, I, I served at a Marine barracks, something that doesn't exist anymore. I had a rifle company in 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines. That was an interesting experience. Then I went on MOI duty in Chicago. I'm still in touch with midshipmen from that experience. They're significant in my life, relationships that just held on to because it was an opportunity to really do things that it's hard to do in other places. Went to headquarters, Marine Corps. I did have time in MAG-12. That was during the uh, first Gulf War. Uh, when, when, the, uh, when the war started, I was an infantry officer in a fighter attack aircraft group in Japan, and I opened up a bottle of Johnny Walker Black with, with another guy and, and drank away my career as we were you know, sitting, sitting the war out. Yeah. Interesting place for an infantry officer to be during, during a, a war mobilization. It must've been an interesting. 
that was significant and it profoundly shaped how I did business after that. I could not have been effective as Coyote 6 without that experience. And I picked up traits, behaviors, thought processes that were significant as, as, I, as I went on. And, and, and it was interesting. I went there with, you know, the attitude of an infantry guy, not just going to the air wing, but, you know, going to the fixed wing guys. And how surprised I was, how wrong my perception and bias was. And in that, I, I was disappointed in myself for being surprised. How could I think that because a Marine is flying an F-18, he's any less a Marine than me? You know, all the biases came out and how wrong I was. And I was so thankful for that. It taught me a bunch of things, not just, you know, the stuff on the surface that I was able to glean from that time that had become tremendously useful to me, but that lesson, be careful, be careful of your biases. Yeah, I love that. I want to come back to that a little bit more because as, as you know, I do, I do want to hear some stories about your, your younger years in the Marine Corps and how they impacted your leadership style as a general. So I, I, I'm going to tag that to come back to hear more about that. I think there's a lot of valuable lessons to be learned there as it relates to the, the joke that always goes on between the ground side and the aviation side. But I think what I heard you just say is, is sage in that it's, it's okay to joke about that, but if they become your biases in leadership, that may not be the most effective thing. So I'd love to come back to that. And then, so you must have stayed in Japan then for Desert Storm? Yes, I was there for Desert Storm. Came back, 2nd Marine Division. I went to 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines as the executive officer. Spectacular experience. Another one that could not have scripted. And when we came back, uh, I went to the regiment as the operations officer. I was on the second plane back out of Okinawa. We were responsible for turning over the barracks and stuff. And the, the boss met me as we, we got off, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Muth, the found figure. And he said, hey, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, okay, sir, give me the good news first. And he said, shave off your mustache. The bad news was I was going to regiment to be the three. And, th and I went from there to second force reconnaissance. That, that's a story in it of itself, Jack Muth, was over at SOTG. That was the last patronage Lieutenant Colonel Command. Force Reconnaissance companies were left out of command screening. And uh, so I was the last guy to get a patronage command as a Lieutenant Colonel. And then I went to Special Operations Command to Leavenworth for two years. Then I went to the desert, the, the, best, the best tour of my career. That's Coyote 6. And for people who are listening, maybe from the other services, Coyote 6, if you're a Marine, you know you know Coyotes and you know Coyote 6, but maybe take a second to explain what exactly that means, Coyote 6. I was uh, responsible for running the Marine Corps' Combined Arms Training Program. It was complex, almost exclusively live-fire, high-end collective training, and that includes Mark 82s coming off of F-18s and triple sevens firing, obviously tanks, maneuvering Marines. And the Marines were maneuvering over the ground, you know, seizing objectives that were still warm and smoking from artillery and aviation. So we were, we were training to the standard that we would use in combat. And it was the only place we could do it because of all the restrictions, in particular aviation and artillery, and in and, and a lot of aspects of maneuver. So it was great. It, it, it was just superb, and all we ever did was go to the field and train. That was a, an 06 command? Yes, it was, yes. And then 
did you get promoted to brigadier general from there or was no i in fact that was my first assignment as a colonel and that's when you and matt spoke of three figures three generals who you were impressed with with their ability to know people you mentioned joe dunford john allen temperers mine and then major general tom jones i was a second lieutenant the 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. And after I turned over my company, uh, there was a small intervening period. And then General Jones came as Captain Jones and took over the company. So I saw him at a distance on a deployment. It's, it's interesting, Dave. We talk about leaders. We talk about mentors. My mentor, when I was a colonel, and as a colonel, you, know, you, type, you, you tend to think this is stuff that lieutenants do, and maybe captains. No, as, as a, a colonel. And he was the most profound influence on me as a as a colonel and general officer. I worked for him at TTCG. It was his influence uh, that I had command of the School of Infantry at Camp Lejeune, and then he nominated me to the Commandant to take over Expeditionary Warfare School. Uh, so he sat on top of me for all three of my colonel assignments. Yeah, we, uh, we became... Very close. And I was selected for Brigadier General when I was uh, director of EWS. I think people are fascinated by the moment that somebody finds out that they have been selected to become a general. What was that moment like for you? Okay, it's an odd story. I was not selected my first time. I was selected my second time. And I knew I didn't get selected the first time. We were doing uh, the 29 Palms portion of the training phase of Expeditionary Warfare School. We completed the professional military education curriculum. And then at the end of the year, we, we had about a month and a half or so devoted to higher-end MOS proficiency training. So we were out at 29 Palms with the ground combat officers, getting them ready to go to the operating forces as a captain rather than as a lieutenant. And General Jones came out. The board uh, had completed. I don't know if he sat on that board or not. We were having a conversation. I could tell in the course of the conversation that I had not been selected. Had I been, I would have known that. And and it was interesting because I got it. And uh, this year, um, I didn't I didn't even know the board was in session. And I a general was there at Quantico because his wife and another another general's wife came and saw my wife Philomena. And I thought, well, what are they doing here? And she said, well, her husband was there and didn't say anything about it. I go, holy cow, that's right, this time of year for the board. And I hadn't gotten my photo taken. And, oh, you, you know, David, you know, so I'm going through this in my own mind. I mean, if they don't select me for Bigot or General because of the photo, then Marine Corps doesn't deserve me as a general. And, and then I thought, okay, could I go the rest of my life thinking, gosh, had I only gotten my stinking photo link? And it was interesting, my battalion commander, Jack Muth, that 3rd Battalion, 6 Marines, he, he was a unique figure. We can talk about him a little bit later. Uh, he was a Mustang. He, he was you know, that maverick. He didn't have a day of college. He was the best read, best written officer in the battalion. Received the battlefield commission as a sergeant with first force reconnaissance in the Oshaw Valley when he got his silver star and then went back for the basic school and became an officer. He didn't get selected the first time for lieutenant colonel. He was a Quantico at the time. So he and all the other majors who got passed over took a group photo and they sent that in as their promotion photos the second time. You know, so, so I ended up getting the photo. So I got a haircut and got the photo. And then I, I sent it to the manpower weenies, promotion branch. And I said, hey, photo's done. 
and the comment came back, it's too late. You know, all the stuff is in. I thought, okay. I did know somebody who was there, and I, I just let them know photos in. And that was it. Just ran a little late. I got a reply that said, not like waiting until the last minute. At that point, I knew I'd been selected. It wouldn't have been necessary to respond. So, you know, it's interesting, Dave. And when I found out I did, it was just signals. I don't know that I felt any differently the second time than I did the first time. I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I and, and I'm cautious. I, I'm cautious to say that, Dave. I, I really am. To the rest of us, and I was saying this to you earlier in our kind of the, the pre-interview that everybody can relate to being a, a lance corporal or a second lieutenant or first lieutenant. We can all relate to being the new junior guy that everybody picks that rank up. Only one percent of the people can relate to being a general officer. So for the rest of us, the ninety-nine percent, we envision. Well, I envision somebody finding out that they got selected for Brigadier General is very similar to how I felt when I was told I was I got selected to be a captain. But um, <laughs> I, the, to the rest of us, I think we just envisioned this big smoke-filled room where a bunch of general officers are sitting around and saying, you know, who's going to join the class? And I know it's not like that, but th nobody has any idea. I just got to imagine that when you get the call and you say, and somebody says to you, and I suppose it's the commandant who says, Congratulations, Mel. You, we have selected you to be one of our next 10 Brigadier Generals. Healthy competition, blah, 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 all that. But there's got to be some sort of sense of pride and accomplishment that is a little bit above and beyond all the other ranks that you've been selected to. It just has to be. Well, for sure. There, there's no question, Dave. And I was at EWS. I got a call late one evening from the Commandant. Sheila was the secretary, and she'd been the secretary for the director for like a thousand years. I remember sitting down in our first interview and she said, you know, I have these kind of modified work hours. You know, I stay late, but then I come in late. I come in late and I stay late. And I said, okay. And she said, uh, of course, I'll obviously change that if, if that's what you like. But th that was set up by General Neal. General Neal had been the director of EWS many guys before me. And of course, a lot of directors have been selected. And, I, and I'd gotten that phone call and, and I was all alone in the building except for her. She was, and she just walked by the front door of the office. And she said, you got the phone call, didn't you? And I, I, I said, yes. And, and she just smiled because she had been through that for quite a few people, General Neal being one, General Jones being another. So yeah, that was, that was interesting. And, and and of course, at that point, you know, kind of the weight of it hit me, hearing it from the Connolly. So I'd love to rewind back, because now we talked about how you, you became a general in the, the moment that you were told. And, but I, I'd love it if you'd take a few minutes and, and go back to and talk specifically about your time when you were a platoon commander at 3-4 and think about were there really crystallizing moments, lessons learned that were so powerful and impactful to you in the first four years of your career as a platoon commander in an infantry company that were, were so formative that they were still in existence at that minute that you got that call that said, congratulations, General. Absolutely. It was, it was an interesting experience. My predecessor had been relieved. Your predecessor at the, when you were a lieutenant? As a platoon commander. I, I joined the battalion. They were already on float. They were sailing by Okinawa, headed down to the Philippines, and I joined with two other TDS classmates. So you actually joined your platoon underway on a ship? Underway. 
and uh, my predecessor had been relieved. It it was it was an interesting experience because there was a bit of a I don't know crisis, if you will, in the platoon. So I was sitting down with my platoon sergeant, who would retire as a sergeant major. We were having our our initial conversation about stuff. You know, we're trying to get a feel for things. Brand new second lieutenant he was a Vietnam veteran, a retread. It, it's it's that new one, right? You're, the, we were feeling each other out, and the opening kind of thing of substance was, can you read a map? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, well, that's good. My predecessor had not just trouble reading a map, but that led to some tremendous, interesting, funny stories. I'm thankful I didn't have to experience. And then, um, you know, we were talking about strengths and weaknesses. I didn't do well on machine guns at the basic school. I did poorly on the test. I have no idea. I think I understand machine guns. But, and he said, that's okay. I do machine guns well. And then he said, are you a disciplinarian? And I said, yeah, I can do that. He goes, good, because I'm not. So it was interesting where we, we saw how we fit together. That really stood out for me. I had an experience with a battalion commander who wasn't happy with the sergeant major he was going to get. And he talked to me. And in the fourth or fifth conversation, I mean separate conversations, I'm a colonel, he's a lieutenant colonel. And I was just saying, hey, I know you don't particularly like him. You're really, really happy with the first sergeant you have, but he is a sergeant major. He just got selected. You're going to have to take him. That's how it's going to work. Well, I, you know, I don't know that our personalities get along. You have to you merge them together. You see where strengths and weaknesses are, and, and you manage personalities. And he looked at me and said, I'm the commander. I don't manage personalities. And I looked at him and said, I'm a commander too. And even I sometimes manage personalities. So one of the things I, I learned early on, Dave, is, you know, strengths and weaknesses, massaging them together. The other thing I learned, though, is taking charge. We went to the field for the first time. You know, company commander had us all together. I mean, I was lost. I couldn't have been more lost. And we were getting ready to work on, we're going to do a night attack. It was a week working up to night attacks. And and I talked to my platoon sergeant and said, hey, uh, that's okay, everything will be fine. And when we had a meeting, he, he went around to the other lieutenants, Meller, and two others who retired colonels, and then one who left the Marine Corps. And Wardy went, ah, I'll figure it out, it'll all be good. And when he got to me, ah, I guess I'll figure it out, it'll all be good. And we had a meeting on the second day, and I wasn't comfortable with how things were going. We, we weren't heading to where we needed to be, but... You know, the platoon sergeant had been put in that platoon for a reason. There had been that crisis, and of course, he was highly thought of. And as we went down and had this meeting, the other platoon commanders were talking through what they had been doing, getting ready to build up. And I realized then and there, we weren't doing the right thing. I had a conversation with the company commander. It wasn't going well. Well, and, and he looked at me and said, you're the lieutenant. You're the platoon commander. You're the one who's been hired. And that was it. I got it. Bingo. That was, um, and that stayed with me forever. That was profound. Uh, it was clarity on authority and responsibility. And in fact, who was responsible? I went right back. I mean, I gathered the platoon. It was in the, I, you know, I, I gave a almost perfect class on the doctrinal night attack off the top of my head. 
And then we went through, I mean, going into the dark, all the things you had to do to rehearse. Because I, at that point, I had to catch up. So I just, I took over. I just absolutely took over. It was interesting. Later on, after we went through, uh, I went down to another meeting when I came back. I don't know if you remember the old, uh, did you ever have sea rats? No, I came in uh, during the MRE, during, but, but the uh, phase one of the MREs with the old pork dehydrated pork patties. Well, I, I liked the little chocolate circles, you know, the dark chocolate wrapped in, in, in uh, silver tin foil. Okay. When I came back from one of the meetings, and, and the platoon sergeant and the guide and the doc and radio man knew that, and I went down to a meeting and I came back and, and there were a couple sitting on my backpack. So... Yeah, I, I know this is a little bit disjointed to a large degree because it's very emotional. But yeah, it and and those things stuck with me. Fitting things together and, and being flexible, strengths and weaknesses, authority, responsibility, who in fact was in charge. And then I also think, obviously, treating people well. As, as I went and did that, it was not done with acrimony. By any stretch of the imagination, I just had to slide in and do it right. But I did it with a sense of urgency, and everybody got it. And I think, in that regard, uh, responded and respected that. And in fact, in many ways, maybe looking for it, given coming in behind somebody who was relieved. That's a great story. I, I love the I love the story about the candies too. I've always I look back on my my much more limited leadership opportunities than you had, but some that were very impactful too. And I've I've always felt that you will learn very quickly if the people that you're leading don't like you. But you will also learn very quickly if they do. They're just in different ways. It's interesting you say that. Uh, my wife and I were at Camp Lejeune. I guess I have if this is gonna be a public broadcast, I can't call it Lejeune. I have to call it Lejeune. Camp Lejeune. Our daughter came back. She had deployed to Iraq as a combat engineer before the surge. She was 19, or 2003 Naval Academy graduate. Combat arms, uh, I'm sorry, combat engineers, went to Iraq with 8th engineers, came back, and then she went on float. She was the heavy engineer at OIC, which was pretty cool. You know, second lieutenant being the senior uh, heavy engineer with the detachment that went to sea. We were you know, hanging around like, like families do. They had, they'd come back from float and they were just waiting for that final formation before they got the green light to break up and go home. And I, I was watching at a distance, but I saw how she was interacting with her staff NCOs. It was smiling. They were bantering and, and I mean, seared into my brain. And I said, I know she was successful. I could tell by the behavior, by the relationship they had. Because if they didn't respect her, they wouldn't be talking to her. Or if they were talking to her, you could see the facial expression. And that not respecting her comes in a couple of different ways. It could, it could be because she was, in fact, weak and could never be a solid officer, and they didn't respect that. Or arrogant or fill in the blank. You know, you, you, you can not be respected at two ends of the spectrum. It's, it's not just, and she was telling, she was telling me one of her Marines was intoxicated and, and was brought back on the ship. And she was in the stateroom. They were, they were in port somewhere and, uh, and she had to go down and handle it. You remember these kinds of things. So she pulled the entire reinforced platoon, the debt, 
read them the riot act. She knew she was effective by how the Marines responded in some of the comments they made. She was taking charge. It's surprising, Dave, how you see those things. They used they referred to her not as the man, but the man. And and the comment was, the man went Hulk on us. That's when you know. It's interesting because I, I don't think anybody really teaches you those kind of things. You just either figure it out as a, a human being and you start to pick up on those things. You really realize that there is a lot to be said for your level of confidence as a leader going up when you get some positive reinforcement from the people that you are leading. So the, the candies on the pack, the man went ballistic, things like that are so impactful. And if you miss those cues because you're just not focusing on it, you miss an opportunity to really get some reinforcement about your leadership style probably being on point. When I was a reserve battery commander, I saw a lot more Marines going from the enlisted ranks into becoming officers in the reserves than I saw on active duty. And I think that's just a natural progression of the reserves because they're doing reserve duty while they're doing college. So every single one of my Marines that finished up PLC or went to TBS and received a commission, I gave them the Marine Officer's Guidebook, which really isn't that useful of a book. It's more of like a symbol. We all have it. I don't know how often people break it open and learn anything from it, but I feel like it's one of those symbols and every every Marine officer should have one. And in the cover, I always wrote that and I pulled it up on my phone. I want to read it to you because I think it really speaks to this, but it was something I wrote down a long time ago out of Colonel David Hackworth's book, Steal My Soldier's Hearts. He said, to be a combat leader in the profession of arms is one of the most noble, most deadly jobs going. It's rough and tough and its rewards are few. But if at the end of the day, the troops say, quote, he's a good man, as opposed to, quote, he's a nice guy, that's pretty much as good as it gets. I love that quote because it, it, it really sums up a lot of what you were just saying. This might be an opportunity to segue a bit, if, if I can, then, Dave, comment about the Marine Officer's Guide. And when you and Matt talked, you started and ended with a couple of things. When you talked about General Dunford, General Allen, General Jones, you talked about this knowing people. You made the comment, well, and I'm not so sure that we teach that. And then when you finished up, you're talking about uh, compassion. And you offered the same thing. I'm not so sure we, you know, we teach that, pick it up along the way. Let, let me offer a couple of thoughts and some things that I had discovered. In fact, it was in the business of putting together the leadership development program that I, I had some profound revelations. And then you also said, you talked a little about, you know, Marine Corps traits and principles, Jay Diddy Buckle and all that rest of that, you know, we make the little acronyms, and almost juvenile. The things are almost self-evident that we teach, the traits and principles. We give, you know, the 60-minute class at OCS, 60-minute class at the basic school, and, and that's kind of it. Let, let me offer some different thoughts on that. First, I do disagree that everybody's are kind of the same. The Air Force, the Army, Navy, the Marine Corps. And the reason why I say that is because I think the Marine Corps' understanding and instructional leadership is profoundly sophisticated. We overlook it. We take it for granted. We just do it like breathing air. Thus, we don't think about the profound business of taking air in, right? Right gets into the lungs, it transforms into the blood system. 
I mean, it's a pretty sophisticated thing that we never think about. We just take it for granted. Let me, if I can, throw a couple things out. We, we do, in fact, teach knowing people because that's one of the leadership principles. Know your people and look out for their welfare. In fact, I would offer to you knowing and then compassion in your interview with Matt are linked in that single principle. Know your people and look out for their welfare. If you do that in a genuine way, as General Jones would always say, this idea of being genuine, genuine concern, when you do it like that, when you take a look at the principles and traits, and we have 14 traits and 11 principles. And I'm, as I mentioned in the email, you know, with that many, you're going to get the kitchen sink. You, you're not going to miss anything in that regard. And I said, well, okay, yeah. You're, and, and that's how I thought. It didn't seem like a big deal to me. In fact, if I could figure it out, if I could be taught it, if I could take it into me, you know, how hard could it be? I was, you know, kind of an average guy, in some ways maybe below average. And the Marine Corps gave me this wonderful opportunity to elevate myself if I chose to do so. When you take a look at where the traits are laid out, you know, the ones at the top are the ones, if you sat down with anybody, they would show up, right? Integrity, decisiveness, courage. Those are, are qualities of the individual. But the Marine Corps, I really believe, looking back on your wonderful interview with Matt, we understand leadership as a living, breathing relationship between two people. But more than that, it is a relationship of power of one over the other. You can be a very poor leader and be decisive, have integrity, have courage. But if you treat people poorly, you're going to be a poor leader. So, you know, you pick those three up at the top end, but then you take a look at the, at the bottom end of you, if you will, of the traits, unselfishness and tact. I think as we talk unselfishness and tact, we're talking about the leader respecting the person being led. When you look at the, the principles, you know, we get we have these character traits we seek in the individual, and we also teach you know basic fundamental behaviors. And a number of those behaviors are the leader to self. Know yourself and seek self-improvement. I think that's profound, you know, looking at yourself. Assessing all the time, taking the critique and the criticism, seniors and subordinates and responding to that. But again, also, you know, knowing your people, looking out for their welfare, employing them within their capabilities. And, and you get this, I think, very holistic sense. I think what ends up happening, you know, we teach it and then we simply expect it. It becomes unspoken. If you think back of your conversations with Matt on the positive and the negative that, that you saw, all of those things that we teach in this laundry list are taken into the being and they become the living identity of the person. It is the identity of who the Marine is. And frankly, when people fail, they fail in that regard. If you, if you look at Volkswagen, General, uh, General Motors, Wells Fargo, I mean, all those people had profound educations, everybody that was a part of that decision-making process. The money spent on their uh, business degrees pulled together from all the people that were in those series of decisions that led them to the conclusions that they did. You could feed, you know, third world countries for years, uh, yet 
collectively, collaboratively, they failed in the decision. GM to just accept faulty starter, and they were just willing to take the responsibility and, and pay the liability on people that died rather than going back and fixing it. And Volkswagen, where they designed in the software, the ability to cheat emissions system. I mean, those aren't decisions made by mid-level managers around the water cooler. And here they are, they failed in their decisions. And I would offer to you, we take for granted the things that we teach Marines that become part of the foundation. You know, once we teach it, we don't have to reteach it because we live it. It becomes the expectation. It appears in how you counsel, what you look at in your subordinates, how you interact with, with your people. And the expectation is that somebody, in fact, in that environment will stick up their hand and say, this isn't right. It's not how we do business. We can't. So I think, I do believe, Dave, and when, when I was actually working with a guy who's, who's a bit of a consultant who pulled all this out of me, I mean, if I could learn it, it's not that big a deal. But the reality is, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. I certainly don't mean to, to minimize the leadership traits and principles. No, believe me. Dave, I thought the same thing. I absolutely thought the same thing. And the person who was working with me didn't even know anybody who was in the military. And he just pulled this out of me. And I kept thinking, the reality is, it's all self-evident. Uh, I mean, somebody is, I, you're right, I didn't think about it. But yes, this all makes perfect sense. And then, and then we reduce it to this acronym that I think, in certain ways, almost does a disservice. Because it's not about memorizing them. It is about living and doing them. And we miss that. Because we just expect it. In fact, when you communicate with another Marine, you have this expectation that he or she is receiving it as you are communicating it. Because you have this not just common foundation, but this very sophisticated foundation. I have an observation on that. I remember back to OCS TBS, and I was memorizing them. But they did create a foundation of expectations. So let's call it a blueprint or a foundation of the house or something like that. I think that, and, and one of the things I'm really trying to accomplish with this podcast, and you're, you're helping me immensely, is that we can memorize all the leadership traits and principles, and it's not until you put them into practice and, more importantly, observe them and others and emulate the behaviors of the people that we respect and want to be like that they start to gel for us. Think about this. And, and as I was working with this friend on this, I just kept thinking, you know, another Marty Robbins uh, or whatever it is, uh, motivational speech. You get the class at the basic school, 60 minutes on each of those, and then the next six months is living it out. That's the difference. And as a consequence, it becomes, it really does become the oxygen in the life of the Marine Corps. It's, it's just how we stay alive. And we never, we don't give it a lot of thought because it's there. Right. And we go on to our first commands and, you know, you went on to your first command and, and you worked with an iconic Marine or two. And we have these things in our head. 
and we've memorized them and we, we've learned them in a classroom environment and then we get out there and we start to connect the dots as leaders. And that's really where I think you start to see some of the stronger leaders bubble up to the top is their ability to connect the things that they've learned with observed traits in others and then a desire to want to emulate those. And that's how we start to develop our own leadership personalities, which is why I'm so passionate about this podcast project is because I want there to be a medium for people to say, here's how I interpreted them and here's the kind of leader that I became. And you just said a whole bunch of things because one of the things you said was strengths and weaknesses. Well, that's that's embedded somewhere in a leadership principle, right? But not 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 straight out, not in black and white and taking charge and having, you know, taking authority and and responsibility and treating people well and the power over others that you're leading and as a leader you need to be have a lot need to have a lot of respect for the people that you're leading those aren't bullet points in the 14 and 11 right those are and for the listeners there's 14 leadership traits and 11 leadership principles that we learn that's when we say that the 14 and 11 or the 25 that's where we're getting to that they're not in black and white there but somehow you general spees learned them as a lieutenant and figured them out and started to apply them to your own leadership style. And I, I assume that a lot of that had to do with emulating others. Two things. Uh, I'll take the easy one first. When I was uh, headed to training and education command, Paul Favor had boot camp. They started this thing called values-based training, VBT, values-based training. And I'd spent a lot of time in TCOM up until that point. Uh, and he came out to see me. I was at the combat center. He, he was so important to him. He, he came out to see me. He said, this, we've changed. We're doing something. And it's making a difference at boot camp. And I thought, okay, good. And, but I got my laundry list. I had three assignments as a colonel and two as a general in TCOM. And I'm going back with a baseball bat and I'm fixing that organization. And then I went to boot camp, you know, getting around and seeing stuff. And I noticed something different. I'd never served at boot camp, but I'd been there enough. And something was different, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I was I mean, really needed to, to, to figure out what was going on. And then I went out to SOI West, and they were talking about, and we, we, we ended up implementing VBT throughout the entire pipeline and restructured leadership instruction to values-based leadership. But, you know, J.J. Carroll was talking about the reduction in attrition because the recruits, the Marines showing up were better. And that was, what What year was that about? And, and SOI, just for people listening, that's School of Infantry, which is where enlisted Marines go that are going to become infantry Marines. This would probably be about 2008 okay. or so, something like that day. And then I went to uh, the West Coast boot camp, and, and I really, really liked the RTR commander. He was great. And, and we went through, I saw what they were teaching the drill instructors and how the drill instructors fought it, you know, when we were first teaching it and stuff. And I was in a squad bay, and I saw this very simple, practical BBT thing. And it, it, it was the DI talking to the recruits about issues that were important to the Marine Corps. Instead of the DI standing and telling the Marine something, either seated at, seated at the position of attention or standing at the position of attention, the recruit stood up and responded back with something that wasn't yet instructed. So the I said, okay, this is important. Who has a thought? And a recruit stood up and said, this is my thought. And then it hit me. It was profound. We had changed the relationship. Something was going on. 
and, and I couldn't put my finger on it. So when we started teaching it at SOI West, we started with the combat instructor course. And I, was, I, I went out there for a mess night, graduation mess night, had it down on the beach. It was really outstanding. And I was talking to four NCOs, two who were already instructors at SOI, and they were combat instructors teaching new NCOs who were going to be combat instructors. And all four of these guys had, had fought in Iraq. I mean, they had seen tough fighting. You know, these are real combat veterans. As we were discussing this, the major who, who had the school came by, and he said something that was kind of interesting, and he pointed to one of the students who said, you know, I know something about him because I sat in on one of the BBT classes, and they were having this discussion, and he was offering his views and his insights and opinion, and then it hit me. Instead of, you know, Corporal Bonatz served in 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, two combat tours, and he's got an 82.5 grade point average, it's, you know, Corporal Bonatz served in two five, two combat tours, he's got an 85.5 grade point average. And about this issue that's important to the Marine Corps, his personal views and opinions are this. And I saw what happened in that, Dave, is the value of the student had risen in the eyes of the major because of that. And then I reflected back on what I saw at Paris Island and at San Diego, in the classroom and out in the field. The value of the individual had risen in the eyes of the instructor because they had altered the relationship. It wasn't me telling you, you repeating back to me. It was me asking you and you giving something back to me that was not prescripted. This uh, growth in my mind of this positive sense of what we're seeing and pulling out of people I mean, I was a general officer and I was having these revelations and discoveries and I saw the power of it. I saw the results. We broke the manpower model because attrition had dropped so significantly. They weren't being thrown out of the Marine Corps fast enough, but they were buying into it at, at percentages higher than before. And they committed themselves to it and stuck with it. And, you know, most people we throw out is because not because they lack the ability. We get through that early on. Is they lack the burning, relentless desire to be a Marine and, and conform and meet to the standards. That's why they leave. So the, I, you know, I, I saw this very positive thing. And then reflecting back on restructuring the leadership development, the leadership package at EWS, what hit me was thinking about my contemporaries or senior people, lieutenant colonels who had gotten relieved and why they got relieved and failed. So as we think about, you know, your comment, we, you know, we see these things, we acquire them, we see that in others, we emulate them, but also think about those who don't succeed. What a profound lesson in that. But the reason why they don't succeed maps back directly into the behaviors and the characteristics that we instruct in the 14 traits and 11 principles. Every guy you know that has been relieved it wasn't the incident that's, that's itself, but it was their nature, their behavior, how they did business behind it that led to the failure. We tend not to throw people out for making a mistake, right? We tend to get rid of people because the mistake shows a fundamental flaw within. And that is such that it's toxic, it can't be tolerated, you can't fix it, whatever the case may be. You know, people err 
you know, you slap them upside the head. You and Matt had that conversation. Right. It's the people that when you really remove somebody, it's because something has been displayed and it can't be corrected. It's more than just the incident. The incident is the manifestation of the real shortcoming. I don't recall seeing that many people relieved, but the ones that I did see relieved, I could always probably say, well, everybody saw that coming. And I don't know if I can recall anybody getting relieved and me saying like, are you kidding me? He was the greatest leader that the Marine Corps had. What are you talking about? I never saw that. And we don't have a lot of them, right? Um, so it is the anomaly that comes out. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. He was missing a couple of these and they were profound right. absences. So I really appreciate your time today, sir. I know that we're on tap for another episode, our second when we get back together next time, I know we're gonna, we'll pick back up on this. We're going to talk about some of your time in Force Recon and specifically is Coyote 6. And then I'm looking forward to uh, some of the questions that we're going to get to about some of the, the failures that you learned from and some of your regrets. And we're going to go over a time where you were scared and things that you learned of that. And we're going to talk about presence of mind, which is one of those old terms that are very familiar to the old, uh, the older people listening who are in the Marines that had their fitness reports done, the old blue fitness reports, and talk about presence of mind. And, and why was that an unwritten rule that it was only marked in times of war, as if we could not observe people's presence of mind in any other environment. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Mavericks in the military too. So really appreciate this last hour that we spent together. And I look forward to us picking up on the on the next episode of this, where we'll continue these great stories with retired Major General Mel Spies. Thank you so much, sir. Absolutely, David. Enjoy it.